Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, God and Art, we are going to be exploring God from the perspective of all different kinds of artistic medium. We will be talking about God from the perspective of painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poetry, film, and photography. My hope is that through these mediums, we will come to a deeper understanding of how God is present in our everyday lives. Enjoy. So as you all know, we are into our series now on God and art. And this week, we are going to be talking about two of the most famous pieces of art from the last 500 years. Leonardo da Vinci's sketch of the Vitruvian Man and Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night. Now, even though these two paintings may look like they have absolutely nothing in common, or excuse me, that sketch in the painting look like they have nothing in common, They actually tell us a lot about our relationship with God. And my hope is that today, as we examine these two pieces, that they're going to give us a sense of how we understand beauty in the world around us. And also, my hope is is that by looking at these two artists with very different styles, that we're going to come to an understanding of God's presence in the world around us and how that is something that we can be much more attuned to in our lives. So that's the foundation of what we're doing today. Are we all on the same page? All right, excellent. Let's begin with Leonardo da Vinci. So Leonardo da Vinci, he was born in 1452. He died in 1519, and he is primarily known as a painter. He painted what is considered today the most famous painting in the world, which is the Mona Lisa. He's also well-known these days because of the Last Supper that he painted, thanks to Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code. I don't know how many of you have read The Da Vinci Code, yes? No? I hope you haven't, because it basically made so that most people in Christianity were like, I'm gone, I'm out, (laughs) finished with you. So he's known as a painter, but the fact is, this guy was so much more than just a painter. He's the true definition of what we call a Renaissance man. Now, the definition of a Renaissance man is a person who is an expert across multiple disciplines and fields. So, besides being a painter, he was also a sculptor, an architect. He was a musician, a mathematician, an engineer, an inventor. He was a geologist, an astronomer, a cartographer, an anatomist, a writer, a historian. And he did all of that before he even ate breakfast in the morning. So that tells you how great this guy was. He was an amazing individual. Needless to say, da Vinci was a genius. And most historians look back on his life And they look at him as being almost superhuman for his ability to know all of these various subjects. And because he was this man who was just so incredibly creative, he was outputting all the time. He painted very few paintings. I don't know if you know that. He was not a prolific painter. But he was always sketching. He just has, we have hundreds and hundreds of these sketches. And he was a person like many during the Italian Renaissance who was obsessed with the ideal proportions, ideal proportions. This is something that was very important to him. And he got his idea of ideal proportions from the Roman architect Vitruvius. Now Vitruvius, he lived during the first century BC. He died about 10 years before Jesus was born. So there's about a 1500 year gap between Vitruvius and Da Vinci. But it was through Vitruvius that 
Da Vinci got his idea of ideal proportions because Vitruvius believed that architecture should always mimic human proportionality. Now, this is an example of Vitruvian architecture. I do not entirely understand how this particular building mimics human proportionality, but I brought it up so that you could see at least what it looks like. Now, according to Vitruvius, the perfect human being was eight heads tall. Now, I don't know how big a standard human head is and what they thought that was, but he thought it was eight, and that was the proportionality that da Vinci used when he was doing his sketch of the perfect human being, which, of course, we refer to today as the Vitruvian man. Now, he also based the Vitruvian man off of this concept known as the golden ratio, which comes from what is known as the Fibonacci sequence. Now, we talked about the Fibonacci sequence in my sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, but for those of you who may not have been there, let me go over it again real quick. So the Fibonacci sequence, it's a sequence of numbers where every number in the series is the product of adding the previous two numbers together. So to give you an example, one and one is two, right? And then two and three is five, five and three is eight, and so on down the line. Do you understand the basic concept of the sequence, how it works? So this particular sequence of numbers, it explains many of the ratios that we find in nature. So for instance, if you go outside and look at a tree, a tree grows according to the numbers in the Fibonacci sequence. The same is true for your vascular system. In your body, the veins, when they break off into capillaries, those numbers of the Fibonacci sequence anticipate your vascular splits. The Fibonacci sequence, it tells us everything about from the flow of rivers to the family tree of rabbits to the spirals that we find in nautilus shells to the spirals that we see in hurricanes to the spirals that we find in galaxies. And of course, because this golden ratio is so important, it's God's number, da Vinci based his work of the Vitruvian man off of this golden ratio. And of course, there is something very pleasing to the eye about looking at something that is so precise. When we see a person or an object that has perfect proportions, well, there is something very beautiful about that. And there have been studies done that show that models, human models, the most beautiful models are the ones with the greatest symmetry and proportionality in their faces. And because of that, because of that symmetry and proportionality, they are seen as being beautiful because they are mathematically almost perfect. Now, at the last service, (laughs) I mentioned that it is almost universally beautiful, and I said, this is Angelina Jolie, and everybody thinks she's beautiful. I had some naysayers in the audience last service, particularly from the choir, (laughs) who said they didn't think she was beautiful. So clearly... I'm just going to put that out there. Maybe you don't think that she's beautiful. I would say most people do. That's why they put her in movies, because she brings people to the box office, right? So the fact is, is that most people, I'm not saying all, most people find her to be beautiful. But this raises an important question in my mind, which is, even though almost universally across the board, humans look at mathematically perfect proportions, and we see beauty in that. My question is, is that what we really want? Did da Vinci really get it right when he made 
his sketch of the perfect human being. And the reason I bring this up is because even though mathematically perfect proportions, there's something so intrinsically beautiful about that to us. I think that when it comes to real compelling beauty for human beings, we are much more drawn to imperfection than to perfection. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. The vast majority of people are not born symmetrical. All we got to do is look in the mirror to figure that out, right? We don't look like her, most of us, right? So most of us, we have features that are slightly off. So you look in the mirror, and if you were to measure, you know, one ear is going to be slightly larger than the other. Your nose is going to be slightly tilted to the right or to the left. Your limbs, whether it be your arms or your legs, they're going to be slightly longer than the other on one side than the other. It's just common, right? This is what happens. Now, these are imperfections. But these imperfections, interestingly enough, are actually what draw us to our mates. So even though we find beauty in those mathematically perfect proportions, when it comes to finding a mate, it is those imperfections that make us a perfect fit for the people with whom we fall in love. If it wasn't for those imperfections, they wouldn't be attracted to us. And so when it comes to superficial beauty, we all want perfection. But when it comes to deep and compelling beauty, the kind of beauty with which you can fall in love, well, with that, we're always looking for imperfection. And the same is true when we're talking about our understanding of God. Now, follow me on this. So, generally speaking, I would say we're all comfortable with the idea that if we are imperfect, then God must be what? Perfect. Okay, theoretically, I think we're all on the same page on that one. We can understand why that makes sense, right? But when it comes to loving God, we're not so keen on loving a perfect God, because if God is so perfect, then God doesn't really understand what our lives are like, since we are so imperfect. There's a chasm in between those two things. So what do we want? We want a God who understands who we are and how we live. We want a God that understands the struggles, the difficulties that we face in our lives. And I think that this is why so many people are drawn to a figure like Jesus. Because what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? It tells us that Jesus understands the struggles and the difficulties we go through. He understands our imperfections. And so as a result, we are much more drawn to Jesus many people are, than to some impersonal, perfect God. We're on the same page on that one. You follow me so far. Now, to prove this point to you, I actually want to talk to you a little bit about Vincent van Gogh, because his art is actually going to drive this point home. So van Gogh, he was born in 1853, and he lived until 1890, and he spent the vast majority of his early adulthood working for a series of art dealers who were selling art around France. But he always had this calling, this desire to be a pastor, and so in 1879, he decided to become a missionary, and he goes out to Belgium, and he starts working in this small mining town among these miners. And while he's there, he begins sketching many of the miners who lived in this small community. And over the next seven years, all the way up until 1886, he's there dabbling in painting and sketching and trying to, you know, just be with these people. 
But in 1886, when he returns, and this is going to be an important year, so just remember 1886, because that's a year we're going to come back to a lot. In 1886, he comes back to Paris, and of course, at this point in time, all of the French Impressionists, they've come on the scene, and it's become this really new way of expressing yourself. And he comes back and he sees all these French Impressionists in Paris, and he's thinking, that's it. That is what I want to do. I want to become an artist. So he decides from that point forward, he's going to do this as his primary job. Now, that's in 1886. When does he die? 90. He only lasted four years as an artist before he ended up committing suicide in July of 1890. And most of the work for which he is well known, he only did in the last two years of his life when he moved to the south of France in an area known as Arles. Now, when he gets to Arles, what happens is he ends up going through a mental breakdown. He gets into such a severe depression that he ends up mutilating his left ear, which of course this is one of his most famous paintings. It's a self-portrait that he does after this. But It is when he's in the south of France that he develops that bright, beautiful, colorful style for which he is very well known. And then, in 1889, he decides that his situation has become so bad that he's going to check himself into the St. Ball de Mosley Lunatic Asylum, which today we would refer to as a psychiatric hospital. So, he goes in to this hospital, and it was originally a monastery, and so he ends up asking if he can have two rooms. The, the first room is going to be on the second floor. And the second floor is going to be his bedroom. The next room he's going to have is his first floor, and that's going to be his painting studio. And it is in this last year of his life, when he's at the asylum, that he produces all of his most well-known works. And, of course, the most famous work that he produces during that time is known as The Starry Night. Now, The Starry Night is actually the view out of his second-story bedroom window. Of course, it's done in the style of the Impressionist, so it's not a realistic portrayal of what he actually saw. But what's fascinating about this is that scientists in the last decade have started looking at his painting, and what they have realized is that there is something magnificently precise about what he was trying to do. So... In 2004, the Hubble Space Telescope was taking shots of the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. And they were looking at this dust gas cloud where there was all this turbulence. And one of the physicists who was working on this, Jose Luis Aragon, he he looks at this photo and he thinks to himself, gosh, that looks really similar to some of the brushstroke patterns that you see in the starry night. And so he wondered, he wondered if there was some kind of mathematical correlation between the starry night and this natural phenomena of dust gas turbulence that you find in space. So what Aragon did was he took both of these things, he put them into a computer, and they started to examine them side by side. So he had the computer take a look at the luminescence and the swirls that you see and compare that with the dust gas cloud from this Hubble Space Telescope. And what they see here is that actually he nailed it. That at the height of his mental illness, not just this painting, but several of them, 
actually match the turbulence that you find in natural phenomena down to mathematical precision. And in fact, what they say is, is that his brush strokes were able to capture a scaling law. Now, I don't know what that means, but that's what they say it means. It's a scaling law, which essentially is this idea of he's able to draw those swirls at different spatial scales. Now, the whole reason why I'm telling you this and why I think this is really important is because ultimately, at the most turbulent moment in his life, Vincent van Gogh was able to somehow mimic the natural turbulence that we find in nature down to a mathematical precision. Now, normally, when we're talking about somebody who has mental illness, we believe that that person is, what, detached from reality. That's what we would say, right? But in this particular instance, Vincent van Gogh, with his mental illness, he was somehow able to tap in to nature. He was in sync with it. Now, what do we believe as Christians? Who's responsible for creating the laws that dictate and govern all of the universe around us? It's God, right? That's what we would say. So I would argue and like to suggest to you this morning that Vincent van Gogh, even though he was suffering from this mental illness, he was in the midst of that mental illness. It allowed him to tap in and be highly connected to God in that period of time. And I find that to be absolutely amazing because what that tells me is that even though we look at somebody like Vincent van Gogh and we assume that he was totally detached and totally out of it, that actually when we are depressed, when we are sad, when we are disconnected, that in fact we can still be very connected to God. And even more than that, what it tells me is that God is not only present in those moments where we think life is just beautiful and grand, but God is right there in the midst of the turbulence and the chaos of our lives. Now, this is so important to me personally because I find so many people feel that God is only present in their lives when things are good, when things are going well, when life feels like it's just going on the right track, as though life were like the Vitruvian man, all orderly and perfect the way that it should be. But when life is really rough, when life feels chaotic, when everything is just falling apart around us, we feel as though God has abandoned us. But that's not true. Just because your life is turbulent and chaotic, it doesn't mean that God has left you behind. It just means that it's a lot harder for us to see God's presence in our lives. And that is why I love this painting of the starry night, because this painting is evidence to us that when we are in the midst of hopeless situations, that God is still right there connected to us. I don't think Vincent van Gogh would have said he felt that way at the time, but this painting shows that God was right there in sync, connected to him at that time. And to drive this point home to you, I want to tell you a little bit about the scripture that we read today. So in that scripture, what happens? Abraham, he he doesn't have any children to pass on his lineage to. It's, It's looking hopeless for him. And God says, here, Abraham, go outside. I want you to look up into the sky, and I want to show you all the stars. So he goes out. It's night. He looks up into the sky. And you've done that. What do you see when you look into the sky? What's up there? Stars. And what do they look like? They look like these perfect 
little circles, right, in the sky. It's like a real testament to God's presence in the world. But what Abraham doesn't realize when he looks at those little perfect orbs is that they are actually just as turbulent as his own life. And so God takes Abraham and he says, you see all those stars up there? I know it's hard to believe, but eventually one day your descendants will be as numerous as all those stars you can see in the sky. And I love this moment so much because God doesn't come down and just fix the situation like, boop, there's your kid right there. Okay, he popped up for you. You know, we're done. It doesn't just do that. No. God is present right there in the midst of this really hopeless situation. God is right next to him and saying, you know what, I'm going to be there with you. God points to the starry night and says, there is hope. And no matter how bad it gets, I promise you, I will be right there next to you. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling in your life when you've been in hopeless situations, when you felt abandoned and lost. I have felt it, but I'll tell you, it's rare when I do. And when I feel those things, it feels very relieving. But I'll tell you right now, most of the time, what I feel when I feel abandoned, lost, alone, is I feel like this whole mantra that Christians put out there that God loves you, I feel like it's garbage most of the time. Because honestly, it's really really hard in the midst of those tough situations to feel like God is there for you, right? Because you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, if you love me, wouldn't you help me out? Like, wouldn't you try to make my situation better? Why am I suffering so much? Why am I going through all this pain and anguish? Shouldn't you help me out? I mean, I see all these people out there who live these perfect, carefree lives. Can I just be like them? Like, make me like them. That's what I want. But you all know the fallacy of that, right? What is it? It's that nobody lives a perfect, carefree life. That is an illusion. And God's job is not to come down and just fix our situation. God's role is to simply be there in the midst of that hopelessness. God's purpose is to love you in the midst of those really turbulent and chaotic times in your life. And so Vincent van Gogh, when he was at the end of his life, and he took his own life. We know for sure that he probably didn't feel God's presence, but God was there in the middle of it all. And I think that's the beautiful thing about looking at something like this painting, is that it tells you that even when you can't see it, God is right there. And so I want to end this morning by saying, when you are in the midst of your starry night, and if you aren't right now, You will be at some point because all of us hit those moments in our lives. When you are in the midst of that starry night, my prayer for you is that you might be privileged enough to feel God's presence in your life. My prayer for you is that you might feel that love in your heart and that that love would give you the hope that even when everything seems hopeless, God has not abandoned you, but yet is right there in the middle of that turbulence saying, there is hope. And I want you to know that no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to be right there next to you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.